Would you join me in prayer? God in heaven, we thank you for this family of believers here at Broadway. We thank you for the ways that we recognize and rejoice and mourn with one another at every stage of life from beginning to end. We thank you that you've brought us together as brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ and that today we get to celebrate with our graduates. God, it's good to be a part of this church that you've made, that you have made us one body, one family. And we pray, God, that today as we hear from your word, that you would make us more faithful to this calling. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This week we are in our third week of looking at Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. And we've seen this very short but very dense and rich description of who Jesus is. And in these few verses, Paul is reminding the Colossians that Jesus is worthy of their love and of their worship, uh, not only because of what he has done for us, but also simply because of who he is as creator, as Lord, as the one who is redeeming all things. He is worthy of their love because of who he is. And so these short verses give us this very lofty view of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. These verses that we've been looking at are probably an early Christian hymn or an early Christian creed that was passed on from church to church and from person to person uh, to help people come to know who this Jesus is that they've received as Lord. And so this morning, again, I would like for you to take your pew Bibles with me and stand, and we are going to read Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Thank you, Pam. We will join together with uh, the church throughout the last 2,000 years in declaring this word about our Lord. Colossians 1, Verses 15 through 20. Would you read it with me? The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. You may be seated. sure that most of you remember the movie The Wizard of Oz. Is there anyone Is there anyone who hasn't seen The Wizard of Oz? Okay, good. I'm not going to spoil anything for anybody. Um, so you know The Wizard of Oz, uh, Dorothy is caught in a tornado. She is transported to this wonderful world of Oz, and she just wants to get home. 
And uh, they tell her, if you go and see the wonderful Wizard of Oz, he will be able to get you home. He's a wonderful wizard. He has all power. He can do anything. Just go find the Wizard of Oz. And so on her journey, she finds a scarecrow. And all the scarecrow wants is what? Brains. And he hears that she's going to the Wizard of Oz. And so he says, well, can I come with you? And they journey along. And then they come across a tin man. And all the tin man wants is what? A heart. And so he journeys along with them. And then they come across a lion. And lions are supposed to be ferocious and brave. But the lion doesn't have what? Courage. That's, that was really good. <laughs> Jaden likes this sermon already. <laughs> so they get to the Wizard of Oz, and the Wizard of Oz says, well, there's one thing you need to do. You need to go, and you need to get the, the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the, Wetch, of the West. And they go, and they get it, and they come back. And they go to this wizard, and this wizard, and there's all this billowing smoke, and this powerful voice, this wonderful Wizard of Oz. And they, they say, we've, we've, we've brought what you asked us for. And they get there, and he says, well, come back tomorrow. <laughs> And then Toto goes over and he pulls back the curtain. And there is this man. And he's got this microphone, and that's where the big billowing voice is coming from. And he's pulling all of these levers, which is where the smoke and all the lights are coming from. The wonderful Wizard of Oz was an illusion. He wasn't a wonderful wizard at all. The letter that we're looking at over the next few months is the letter to the church in the city of Colossae. And this city, like all of the cities that were written to in the New Testament, were a part of the Roman Empire. And for centuries, this area of the world had been in almost a constant state of war. And then the Romans came to power. And for hundreds of years before the writing of this letter, uh, they had brought order and law and peace to the world. And it's really hard for us to imagine how dominant Rome was at this time. They connected the empire thousands and thousands of miles with roads. They brought law and order and peace. And they brought what they called the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome. Now, of course, they brought their peace through a whole lot of violence. Rome was an incredible war machine, but they did it. And in order to keep order and peace, Rome used a lot of propaganda in order to tell their story and to tell people who they were as Rome. For example, sometimes if you were walking along one of these Roman roads, you would come across a group of people hanging on a cross. And over that cross would be a placard above their head that said what their crime was. And their crime was always some crime against the Roman Empire. Crucifixions were used intentionally and strategically by Rome to remind people that if you messed with Rome, there was going to be consequences. Rome used their money to communicate messages about their emperors. Their money had images in their emperors that it said things, had inscriptions on it like this emperor is the Dominus Nostor, our Lord, or Pontifex Maximus, the high priest. Some Roman historians used the metaphor of a body to describe those who belonged to Rome, those who were citizens of Rome. All the different members of the Roman Empire were joined together as one body, and each of them contributed something to the empire. Caesar Augustus, the one who's referred to in the book of Luke, who was Caesar when Jesus was born, he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, 
And Julius Caesar was called a god and believed to be a god. And so Caesar Augustus took on the title of the son of God. One of the poets of Rome called Caesar Augustus the prince of peace. Are you hearing some echoes here? Paul and the other writers of the New Testament reframed everything for the church. They wanted to tell them that reality is different than the way that Rome frames it, and the way that they tell the story about who they are. Paul is saying to the Colossians in this letter that the story that Rome is telling you about God, about the world, about your life, about reality, it is a lie. It's an illusion. And the biblical writers do this in this very creative way. They take the propaganda of Rome, this false story that Rome tells about itself, and they flip it all upside down, and they use it to tell the true story of who Christ is for the world. The biblical writers pull back the curtain on the wonderful wizard of Rome and shows them for who they are and tell them what is really true about God in the world, and about their own life. And here in this hymn, Paul is saying to them that you have been called to be a part of a different community of people called the church. It is a body of which Jesus is the head. It is a community that has been been formed not through violence, but through self-sacrificial love for others. It's a community formed not by death, but by resurrection. You are a part of this community first. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, we've been looking at this the last three weeks. In the first week, we talked about how Christ relates to God. Last week, we talked about how Christ relates to creation. And this week, we talk about how Christ relates to the church. And the first thing that Paul says about how Christ relates to the church is that he is the head of the church, that the church is a body and that Jesus is the head. And this metaphor of a body is a metaphor that Paul uses a few times in his letters, right? Most of the time when he uses this metaphor, he's, the emphasis is on how we as different members of the church all have our part to play and how we all relate to one another and how one person is not more important than the other, how the, the hand is not more important than the foot or the eye to the mouth, that all of us as a body, one body, have a role to play. But here the emphasis is a little bit different. The emphasis is not how we relate to one another, but how all of us relates to Christ, the head. He is the head. In other words, he is the one who is in control, the one who decides what the body is going to do. He is the head. When the head says, you go, the body goes, that's where the body goes. And so that's the way that Paul is describing Jesus as the head. Then he says that we are the that Jesus is the beginning of the church. He is the one who started the whole thing. He is the source, who the church is and what the church does flows from his passion and his vision and the spirit that he poured into us continues to carry out today. Uh, Pastor Bob would be horrified that I would use this as an illustration, but (laughs) Pastor Bob started Broadway, at least on our human level, right? And even though most of you in this room probably haven't met Pastor Bob, Uh, His influence is still here, right? 
uh, his passion, his vision, the things that, that he led this church into in those first years at Broadway continue to be a part of this church. Well, Jesus is the beginning of the church from the very beginning. He is the one who started it, and his vision and his passion for his people are what continue to move us and challenge us and push us into faithfulness. The third thing that Paul says about who Jesus is for the church is that he is the firstborn from among the dead. We talked about this title of firstborn a couple of weeks ago. And what we said a couple of weeks ago is that firstborn certainly meant in the most obvious way that it's the firstborn of a family. Uh, I'm the firstborn of my parents, uh, Bruce and Connie. Um, I'm Ryan, I'm the firstborn, and then Adam is the secondborn. Um, she's going to be upset with me for saying this, but my Aunt Pat is here, and she is the first of six of my dad's family, and she's here today. Pat and Dale, love you guys. Thank you for being here. And there is, there is, I'm glad you're here today. I didn't think about this until just now. There is a sense in which, which Pat, as the firstborn of the family, after... Our dear, my dear grandparents, her dear parents passed away that she has become an authority in our family. She's become something that we've looked to, that has encouraged us, and has become a matriarch in our family. We appreciate her. Well, the firstborn in the time of Jesus when the Bible was written, uh, it was even more formal and, and more weighty when you were the firstborn. When you were the firstborn, you were given authority over the household. The firstborn son in particular at this time was given authority over the household. And so when dad was away or after dad died, the authority of the father passed on to the firstborn son. And that firstborn son then had the same authority that the father had over that household. Well, Jesus is the firstborn over the church. He is the one who has been given authority by the father over the church. The firstborn was the one who was also given, uh, was given authority over the family, and he was also given responsibility over the family. The firstborn son had to take care of his family and his mother and the household and the family business in a way that none of the other children were expected to do. With authority comes great responsibility, and that's what the firstborn son was given in the book of Genesis, we have a few stories about older brothers who don't take the proper responsibility for their younger siblings, right? Started very early, Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain didn't treat his younger brother right. Esau didn't take the authority that was given to him. He sold away his birthright to his brother. Joseph's older brothers, they sold him into slavery. From the beginning of the Bible, there are stories about firstborn not acting the way that the firstborn should act. Well, Jesus is the firstborn who does everything that the firstborn is supposed to do. Takes care of us, his younger siblings. I came across this wonderful quote this past week. I'm just going to read it to you. Jesus is the older brother who will not trade his birthright for a bowl of soup. Jesus is the older brother who will not trade his siblings into slavery. Jesus is the older brother 
who leaves the comfort of his father's estate to seek out the lost brother among the brothels and the pigsties and actually rescues him from the degradation of the mud and dresses him in his father's robe of his own accord. Isn't that beautiful? Think about that story of the prodigal son and the lost son who ran away from his father and how that older brother in that story failed in his responsibility to take care of his younger brother. We have this story of Jesus, our older brother, who enters into our darkness and into our mess and rescues us. Amen? Jesus is the older brother who does his job. He's our older brother who is taking care of us. So the older brother receives authority, he takes on responsibility, and he is also the one who receives the greatest inheritance. The greatest inheritance. And afterward, the inheritance was divided among all of the rest. Well, Paul tells us that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. What was Jesus' inheritance from the Father? Resurrected life. He was the first one to receive it, but he will not be the last. He is the firstborn from among the dead, but there are more to receive this inheritance of our older brother. In another place, Paul says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of a resurrection that is to come. It's a different way of saying the the same thing. There is a whole family of resurrection coming. And our elder brother was the firstborn of the resurrection. And those who come under his authority will share in this inheritance. Jesus is the head of the church. We are the body. Jesus is the beginning of the church. We are following our leader. Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. And in many ways, the rest of the book of Colossians that we're going to look at over the next couple of months is Paul fleshing out what it means for the Colossians to live according to the reality that Jesus and not Caesar is Lord of their lives. And that the church is the body that they are a part of and that their identity comes from who Jesus says they are rather than what Rome says that they are. And there are many powers and rulers and authorities in our own lives today that claim to have authority over us and to tell us that if we are faithful to their vision of reality, that all will be well with us and that we will experience pox, that we'll experience peace. Whether it's the American dream or technology or race or money or sexual identity, we need to allow the scriptures to pull back the curtain on these things and show us that any other person or thing that claims final authority in our lives is like the Wizard of Oz. It's an illusion. We are called to live according to what is real. Jesus Christ is Lord. And the rest of Colossians, in many ways, are instructions about how to live under the lordship of Jesus. And so we're going to be spending the next couple months talking about these things, but I just want to kind of lay the groundwork for us and talk about some of what this says in relation to us being the body of Christ. We are called to live as the body of Christ. Jesus is our head, and so we must refuse to allow any of the other powers or authorities or principalities in our lives to define us or define our relationships with one another. Our identity, our relationships with one another are defined by Christ, our head, and not by any other 
man-made thing. And so we see in the scriptures that racist attitudes have no place in our community. Later in Colossians, Paul will say that, there, that in Christ there is no Greek or Jew, barba- barbarian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. The way we relate to one another as different races is defined by our relationship to our head, Jesus Christ. Our primary identity and how we relate to one another comes from our common need for Christ and our reconciliation that we experience in him. In this community, there can be no treating the rich better than the poor. The world gives value to those who are rich. But the book of James is very clear. If a poor person walks into your church meeting, you must treat them the same way that you would a rich person. Because we are defined by our relationship to our head, not by whatever values the world has around you. Our value, every person in this room, your value comes from the riches of Christ that have been freely given to us. And we can go on and on and talk about the ways that we divide ourselves up as a people that has no place in the church. Because we are one body with Jesus Christ as our head. In all of our relationships with one another flow and uh, depend on Christ, our head. Another thing about being the body of Christ is to remember that we are the visible representation of Jesus to the world. We are the visible representation of Jesus to the world. The way that the local congregation The way that the local congregation lives and acts is the way that the world will interpret who Jesus is and what he's all about. It's a pretty sobering thought, isn't it? That how we act, how we relate to one another, how we live in community with one another will tell the world or reflect something about who Jesus is for good or for bad. And so when we see a local church in Kansas protest the funerals of homosexuals with these picket signs saying terrible things, we are angry because we know that the world interprets the gospel through what they're doing. The way the church acts will be how the world interprets the message of the gospel and who Jesus is, rightly or wrongly. The good news about that is that when we live faithfully to our head, when we live faithfully to who Jesus is, we can and do point people to him. And our primary calling in the world as a church is to be faithful to Jesus, to live according to his word and his way in the world, no matter what the circumstances that we are in, whether we are in a time of prosperity or in a time of uh, of great need, whether we are in a time when the worldly government above us is friendly to the church or unfriendly to the church, our calling to Jesus is to be faithful here in this place. The way that the church lives together as the church here in Fort Wayne will be the way that the people of Fort Wayne interpret the gospel. The good news about this is that when we look at church history, we find that when the church was faithful, especially perhaps in those times when worldly powers were unfriendly to the church or opposed to the church, are the very times when the church shone the most brightly. I'm presently reading a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. 
I just think that is a wonderful title. The patient ferment of the early church. Ferment is what yeast does in a batch of dough. And oh yeah, Jesus called his people yeast. The kingdom of God is like yeast in a batch of dough. It's hidden. It does its work slowly, but it makes real effect on the dough. The patient ferment of the early church. And what this book talks about is how, how did the church grow from the, the year 30-something A.D. into the year 300 in A.D. until over half of the Roman Empire considers themselves Christians in just 300 years. How did they do that? It's a fascinating historical study, especially when the church had no worldly influence at all. Most of those years, no kings, no emperors were Christians, no senators in the Roman Senate, no political influence at all. But the early church did is they practice a patient faithfulness to the Lord in their particular place. So when Jesus said to them, show hospitality to strangers, they did it. And when they said that they should take care of the poor and the sick and the widow, they did it. Because Jesus said that all people are made in the image of God, they rescued and adopted Roman little girls who were left out to die by their Roman parents. They adopted them, they brought them into their home, and raised them up as Christians. The Christian church of the first three centuries never grew by the sword, never grew by coercion, never grew by any of those worldly things. They grew because they were a body filled with the Holy Spirit that lived faithfully to their head, and each part did their work. It was a patient faithfulness to Jesus. And historians, Christian and non-Christian alike, say that it was because of the very unique way that Christians lived in the cities of the Roman Empire that caused the church to grow. One writer says it this way, and I don't believe that he is a follower of Jesus, but this is what he says. Christianity revitalized Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships that were able to cope with the many urgent urban problems. To cities that were filled with homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. In other words, come and be with us. We'll provide a family for you. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christians provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent and ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. He then goes on to say, No wonder the early Christian missionaries were so warmly received in the city. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture, capable of making life in the Roman cities more tolerable. The early church pursued faithfulness to Jesus. They were patient. And they believed that the way of life that Jesus instructed us to live would provide an attractive alternative to the way of life that Rome offered. 
I think there are two things that we as Christians, I think with very good intention, are tempted to pursue, and yet the Bible never tells us to pursue them. One is political power, and the second is suffering. One is political power, and the second is suffering. For most of history, of the history of our own country, Christians have been in a place of privilege and power. We've had the opportunity to wield authority and to make laws and policies that reflect God's biblical plan for nations. And this has, by and large, been a very good thing. When it is available to us, Christians are right to step in to places of authority and to be a voice for truth and for justice from a biblical perspective. But we are entering a time, aren't we? At least it seems where we're losing this power and influence. And there is a lot to be grieved about that. It's a real loss. And those of you who are in your 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, you feel that loss. You see the ramifications of that loss much better than I do. It's a real loss. Political policy, local or national, has real effect on lives and communities for better or for worse. And yet we're here in this present moment where we are. So how do we respond? The patient ferment of the early church, I think, is an excellent cue for us. The early church did not have any political power. They did not seek it, but they chose to be faithful and through their faithfulness had a profound effect on the Roman Empire over the course of 300 years. It was a ferment. It happened slowly. But eventually, they were given authority because the way of life that they lived was so far superior to that of their neighbors. The second thing that we are tempted to seek as Christians is suffering. There are some in the Christian church that say that the church must always be on the margins of culture. We must never have any influence or any authority, but we should only follow the way of the cross, which is the way of suffering, and that's what we should seek. And there are some who believe that we must suffer for Jesus. Martyrdom is a witness to Christ, and so we must need to intentionally seek suffering and seek to be martyrs for Christ. The Bible doesn't tell us to seek suffering any more than it says to seek political power. Rather, depending on the time and depending on the circumstances, political power and suffering are the results of faithfulness. Depending on the time and depending on the circumstances, political power and suffering are the results of faithfulness. So as we seek faithfulness to Jesus as our first and primary goal, we must then be prepared and equipped to receive whatever comes our way, whether it be suffering or whether it be power and influence. We are called to be patient, faithful followers of Jesus, to be a people who live holy and righteous lives. People who radically forgive one another as we have been forgiven. People who challenge the rulers and authorities when they overstep their God-given boundaries and when they promote a culture of death rather than a culture of life. We are to be people who open our homes to the strangers. People who serve the poor and the needy. 
And whatever comes from all of that faithfulness comes, and we must be ready for it either way. And the great mystery of this, it's told to us in the scriptures, and it plays itself out in history, is that God makes the church into a place where he dwells, and that becomes an instrument where he accomplishes his mission, very much in spite of us, right? <laughs> The church is a pretty messy place. We pursue faithfulness to our Lord, but we fail to live up to it. We often don't get well on along, we don't often get along well with one another. We gossip, we argue, we look down on our neighbors. We are sinners like the rest of the world. The church isn't a very glamorous place either. The church is made up of all kinds of people, rich and poor, people with great minds and very simple minds, people that are very ordinary and people that are very extraordinary. But in our messiness and in our ordinariness, Jesus says, I am there. I am its head. This church is my body, and it will carry out my purposes. I am there, and I fill the church with my presence. And the church is the body of Christ, and I am choosing by sheer grace to use this place for my purposes and to make myself known through them by sheer grace. So wherever you are in your life right now and wherever we find ourselves as the church here in Fort Wayne, in Indiana, in the United States in 2016, we must seek first the kingdom of God. We must seek first faithfulness to Jesus, and whatever comes from that, we will prayerfully receive it with thanksgiving. Let's pray. God in heaven, we, we need your help. We are a broken and messy people, and we need your help to live out this calling. I pray, Lord, that you would form us more and more in unity and in the power of the Spirit to do the work that you've called us to do here in this place. We thank you, God, for the ways that many of these things that the early church did are already happening, are already real, are already being made manifest here through Broadway. We praise you for that, and we pray that it would increase more and more and more and more. We pray that you would fill us with your Spirit and make us your body. Amen.